for the last few months, we have been working hard on creating today's event for you. And that work has paid off. We've put together a great event. Uh, these events do take a lot of effort for everybody involved. And I would like to thank Medivy for uh, supporting Longwoods in this event the, as they work to deliver on their mission and improve the well-being of Canadians. I am excited to see so many new names for this event. Uh, a lot of people I haven't met before. For those of you I have not met, I am Matthew Hart, CEO for Longwoods. Please feel free to reach out to me at any time and introduce yourself. Uh, I'm a strong believer in building my network. Before we get started, just a quick housekeeping note. Uh, questions are welcome and you can ask your questions in the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen. Uh, Dr. Alessi uh, might have a minute or two to answer some questions at the end of his presentation, but not to worry, he will be joining the second half of the panel discussion. We have speakers today from Toronto and Marathon, Ontario, Halifax, Nova Scotia, and London, England. Personally, I am from Pickering, Ontario, and I would like to acknowledge that the uh, city of Pickering resides on the land within the jurisdiction of the Williams Treaties and on the traditional territory of the Mississauga Scugog Island First Nations, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. Uh, this acknowledgement reminds us of the responsibilities to our relationships and the ancestral lands of which we learn, share, and live. To welcome our featured speaker this morning and to get us started, I would like to introduce today's moderator, Bernard Lord. Bernard, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Matt. Uh, thank you to Longwoods for helping organize uh, this event. Thank you to our uh, guest speaker and our panelists for joining us. And thank you, everyone for being with us today. Uh, Matt, I, I want to thank you for the acknowledgements. I also want to acknowledge that today is Pink Shirt Day. And while it may not look pink on the camera, for some reason my camera makes it look light lilac, I am wearing a pink shirt today. And it, this is to symbolize a stand against uh, bullying. Um, so my name is Bernard Lord. I am the CEO of MetaV. And just to tell you a little bit about MetaV before we get started, MetaV oversees uh, MetaV Blue Cross and MetaV Health Services. MetaV Health Services is a primary healthcare solutions organization and the largest contract provider of EMS management services in Canada, as well as MetaV Blue Cross, a premier all-in-one benefits carrier and public health program administrator. We are a not-for-profit organization and we commit uh, annual social dividends to our MetaV Health Foundation, which is aimed at addressing some of our country's most pressing physical and mental health care challenges. And in fact, in 2020, because of COVID-19 and the additional challenges uh, created by the pandemic, we added a $5 million COVID relief fund for uh, several communities in the country. Our unique structure allows us to use the insight from all our operations to build and deliver integrated models of care, to do things differently and deliver on our mission to improve the well-being of Canadians. Before introducing our guest note uh, speaker this morning, um, uh, and we are, we're lucky to have him with us, I, I wanna take a moment to touch on the reason that we're all here today. We want to look at ways that primary care and community-based care can best work together to support patients and alleviate ongoing pressures in our healthcare system, really to provide the right care at the right time, the right way for each patient. And this was a challenge before COVID. It certainly is a, a challenge now during the pandemic. 
and will continue to be a challenge post-pandemic. As healthcare solutions partners and leaders, we must all ask ourselves questions about the future of healthcare and how we will deal with the aging population that is uh, happening across the country. Care is an action, it's not a place. And as we will discuss today, through team-based approaches involving a variety of clinicians, doctors, nurses, and paramedics, personal support workers, we have the potential to help people stay healthy longer and stay in their homes as long as they, they want as possible and help them navigate the healthcare system when they need it and ultimately ensure that they receive the right care at the right time. Especially with the COVID-19 pandemic, this isn't simply a matter of making healthcare more convenient. It's about giving Canadians the healthcare they need to improve their health outcomes and create capacity within our existing system so we can address the surge and issues that are happening across the country. Now with that, I am extremely pleased to introduce our keynote speaker this morning, Dr. Charles Allison, a globally recognized and trusted leader in healthcare. As the Chief Clinical Officer for the Healthcare Information and Management System Society and a Senior Advisor to Public Health England, Dr. Allison brings a wealth of experience, particularly around health systems and the interface between healthcare, social care, and the personalization of wellness. He is a physician in London with more than 35 years of experience in all aspects of clinical practice in the UK National Health Service. Most recently, he served as the chairman of the National Association of Primary Care, part of the NHS Confederation, where he was at the heart of the recent health and social care reforms. On top of his various international academic positions, Charles is part of the World Health Organization's expert panel that is formulating new guidelines around risk reduction in dementia globally, and also leads thought leadership around productive, healthy aging. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Charles Alessi. And Dr. Alessi, the floor is yours. Thank you for being with us. And thank you very, very much for the invitation. I'm absolutely delighted uh, to accept this invitation and to be here with you today. And you'll notice, by the way, I'm wearing a, white, uh, a pink shirt, which is actually far pinker um, uh, than Bernard's was. I'm not quite sure why. I've obviously got a pink camera and he's got a blue camera. Perhaps that says something about us. Um, uh, so I'm delighted to be here. Absolutely delighted. So thank you. Can you see my um, screen I'm trying to share? I'm assuming uh, you can, unless you tell me you don't. So yes, I'm going to proceed. Um, I really wanted to talk a little about um, uh, the changing needs in this era we have, because it's really very different to the eras we had before us. But before I start, I just want to address uh, something about um, uh, HIMSS itself, because HIMSS is another not-for-profit um, uh, and really has a mission uh, and a vision which I think will resonate, particularly the vision for me, which is the realization of the full health potential of every human uh, everywhere. And in essence, this is where we're going. Um, so let's go to the pandemic. So we keep on talking about this pandemic. So wh what has changed with this pandemic? Um, and I reckon just about everything has changed with this pandemic because um, uh, 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 everything is very different to the way it looked before. And these, these changes are really quite significant. 
Um, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting here, would you believe Lenin out of all people, not somebody I normally would even um, quote in, 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 in a presentation, but there's this saying which, which really resonates with me, the decades where nothing happens and weeks where decades happen, uh, because in essence, that's what's happened with the pandemic. You know, I've got, I've got colleagues and friends uh, all over the world who are associated with digital transformation and the effect of digital transformation on personalization, on community care, on care outside of hospitals, all the subjects we're talking about today. And in essence, there's one in particular who is in Denmark, who is just about to retire. Uh, and, and, he was, and he and I have been talking quite frequently recently, just before his retirement. And he was saying, you know, I, I feel I haven't quite achieved quite as much as I had hoped because, you know, to a degree we've overpromised around the digital transformation of health and care and the personalization of health and care uh, and the fact it's all going in the community because in, in practice it's become a marginal activity, but it really hasn't taken off. And suddenly, of course, what happens? But the pandemic, which managed to outpace any health and care system in, in, in the world and um, uh, where he is now, uh, is his his uh, his uh, delayed his retirement? He said, "I can't for the life of me leave now. I'm having so much fun. I've achieved more in the last few weeks than I've achieved in the last 15 years. Um, uh, there's so much happening now. This is the time to. This is the place to be in, and this is the time where we're all going to see it happening. And in essence, I think that's exactly uh, what it, what has been happening. So, what really has happened in this pandemic?" Yes, of course, it has outpaced, as we said, the, um, uh, the, the, the ability <clears throat> of health and care systems uh, to prepare for it. And if we think in terms of, uh, uh, you know, all the health systems we know, both in the developed, uh, in other words, in the, in the higher income countries, in the middle income countries, and then lower income countries, um, there isn't a single country, a single nation, which could say, I've had a perfect uh, pandemic, because uh, the fact that it has taken uh, so many, uh, uh, it's taken over a year now uh, to play out, and it hasn't played itself out completely by any stretch of the imagination, um, uh, means that nobody can say, I've done everything perfectly. Um, what the effect has been is really quite significant. And we are, of course, all concentrate on the effect it's had on, um, uh, the, uh, on the population uh, and, on the, uh, and on the carers of the population. In other words, the health and care services uh, who put themselves in the face of danger to protect us, in essence, uh, because uh, the number of deaths have been pretty significant. The number of older people who have died, sadly, uh, have been pretty significant as well. But there's another dimension which we need to consider. Uh, and that dimension really is around the, the, the non-communicable diseases, because we've seen a remarkable reduction in presentations, uh, presentations for non-communicable disease interventions. People are sitting on their symptoms. People are dying at home. People are too scared to go into hospitals because of nosocomial infections. Um, this is really serious stuff. If you consider um, uh, the fact that there is an element of shaming of health and care systems, because of course we have been unable, and it's not because we haven't tried, it's because we literally couldn't manage the effect of a pandemic and to treat uh, the, 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 you know, the, the pandemic itself as well as treat everything else. 
and in many respects, we're reaping the, be the, 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 the benefits of that. And sadly, they're not very positive benefits. They're a, a significant uh, increase in the number of deaths, particularly of older people. We're seeing a reduction in the, in, in the planned longevity, for example, in, 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 in a lot of European countries. Uh, in Spain, in Italy, um, uh, it's really quite frightening what's been going on, um, uh, particularly if, if one goes into pockets. But, you know, we've also seen other things happening. As I said before, digital transformation happened at a pace none of us thought would ever happen in our lifetime. We always thought this was around the corner. We always thought this was just about to happen. But suddenly it happened. And in some respects, and dare I say this, but I suppose I'm only talking to friends, so I will say it, it may have happened too quickly. Um, uh, uh, and, 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 um, uh, uh, it happened so fast that training, for example, for, for clinicians just couldn't happen. Um, issues around cybersecurity uh, should have been planned better, but weren't in many cases. We've seen quite a few attacks uh, um, uh, associated with the fact that we've moved to digital modalities in managing care that was uh, previously within hospitals and within face-to-face uh, uh, -face bricks and mortar within primary care. Um, and, and so this has really fundamentally changed uh, everything. Uh, moving on to governments. Oh, oh dear. Um, uh, it even, gets even more difficult suddenly because it's really, really very, very strange if you look at what's been happening globally because uh, there are some countries which actually had a, can you have a better pandemic? I don't know, but had certainly have been seen to have suffered less adverse effects than say other governments. And those governments tend to be either the governments that have um, uh, recent experience of a pandemic or some civ civic um, uh, emergency, things like, uh, I, I mentioned Japan, for example, you know, with earthquakes, with uh, terrorist attacks, with, with, with earthquakes in particular, with, with uh, tidal floods and whatever, they have a system whereby the population and the government tend to have a, a, a good communication associated with that for pretty obvious reasons. But you translate that into the more mature democracies, mm, it's not quite as good, especially if you've had, surprisingly, a, a significant period of um, stability, which uh, all our countries to a degree have had. Uh, and so um, uh, the, the other uh, load of countries that seem to have some sort of advantage are the ones which have uh, much shorter lines of command. And what do I mean by that? Well, uh, you know, if you happen to have, um, say, a, a, a country which has a very centralized um, political system, or, or even not necessarily a democracy, uh, it's very easy uh, to invoke systems like digital test and trace, tethering of telephones, forcing people to show um, uh, uh, passes before they enter into a, a public transportation system or uh, get onto a taxi. It's certainly much more difficult uh, to have those sorts of interactions in countries where, where the balance between personal liberty and the duties of the individual to the rest of the citizens is something which is not quite as clear, perhaps, as it is within uh, a more totalitarian regimes. And of course, what suffers for us in particular who live in, in, in mature democracies is, is trust because what we have seen uh, globally is that the levels of trust in governments that the population has 
hasn't necessarily increased uh, through this pandemic, uh, even if governments have obviously done their best, and of course they've done their best. Uh, but the nature of this pandemic, uh, particularly the asymptomatic transmission, has defeated most systems so completely that the population thinks uh, that the governments have to a degree failed on the basic tenets of protecting the population uh, that they rely on and in essence who the population pay taxes to and we all know how long it takes once you lose trust and what a, what a mountain uh, there is to climb as a result uh, and the effects of this upon the access to data are very very clear um, uh, in, in some jurisdictions it's very easy to mandate a process whereby all data uh, including um, uh, social security data, everything is 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 available um, uh, to to um, uh, central governments to actually manage a pandemic. It's certainly much more difficult if you're dealing with um, a, a democratic institution. So let's just start to think the effects of all of this. What have they been? What is really going to, going to change, and what is health and care going to look like? in the 2020s. I think there are some changes which are, which are co completely irreversible. And it's not what I think which is important, it's what everyone else thinks. And clearly there is a consensus that, these, that there is no going back uh, to what we had before. Um, <clears throat> there is a clear understanding now that um, the approach we have to managing non-communicable diseases, in other words, cardiovascular diseases, the cardiometabolic diseases, the cancers, um, uh, we start too late, we start with the symptoms, we really should start before to manage uh, the risk associated with developing those symptoms, uh, and, and this is going to continue. We really are moving from a symptomatic approach to more of a life course approach. Now, <clears throat> the advantages of that are significant, of course, because we'll be able to maintain communication far better using these new technologies which we're using today, which make uh, communication so much easier, perhaps not quite as rich, um, of course, as a person-to-person -person interaction, but there are ways in which we can manage this better. So I said the increased emphasis of activation is also another important issue. Um, activation is the engagement of individuals in their own health and care. Uh, clearly, it's so much more, re uh, so much, uh, more rewarding and so much easier uh, if you're actually dealing with a population that is completely engaged in their own care rather than a population or an individual who basically thinks, I just live my life as normal, and when it breaks, I go to the dock and the dock fixes it. And then I go back and do what I was doing before. We know that doesn't work, and we know that the more you invest in your health and care today, the greater the benefit will be in the long term, uh, as we move towards, obviously, productive, healthy aging, which is really where we should be going, rather than merely longevity. So what happens to the institutions we have? And of course, we'll continue to have places like hospitals. Um, they'll continue to have a role, and we know this isn't the last pandemic, um, but the care, if it, is, if, it, if it exists solely within hospital systems, will clearly move into the community. Um, uh, it already is largely in the community anyway, in a lot of jurisdictions, but in the places it isn't. Um, uh, it, it's, 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 it's happening already, and this digital uh, step is part of the process of it happening in the community. Um, uh, and the fact, by the way, that we've had such high levels of dosocomial transmission has certainly accelerated that process. As I said, in, in, in England, where uh, uh, I'm, I'm speaking to you from London, England, 
um, uh, we are in a situation where four in 10 of the uh, infections around COVID over the last few months have actually been uh, nosocomial. Nosocomial transmission is a real issue. Despite the best efforts we make to separate populations, it's practically inevitable with something as infectious as this and the asymptomatic nature of this condition. And that in itself has fed into the populations. And also we need to start thinking uh, very much more around uh, some new innovation here. One, the age of precision, where we start talking about precision health as well as precision medicine. And by precision health, I mean having really personalized um, uh, uh, approaches towards individuals. In the 1990s, we were interested in, um, in, in medicine, which we called evidence-based medicine. Uh, it still is important, of course, it's the basis of all modern medicine, but, but um, uh, it, it really is medicine by body part to a degree. We're moving more towards medicine by person. And uh, this includes the, 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 the will of the person, the wishes of the person, uh, and really the aspirations of the individual. Uh, so we're really moving towards much more personalized health and care, much more precise health and care. Uh, and this is clearly uh, the direction of travel. So I mentioned precision health, and I think it's, it's important we sort of, we need to define this because it really is around not only, um, uh, uh, we know what precision medicine is, uh, we, know, we know everything about precision medicine. It's this wonderful way we have in which to suit treatment uh, directly to the individual. Well, in many respects, this is very similar, but all we're doing is we are managing the process of health and wellness, which we know can very well and does influence uh, the outcome and symptomatology of non-communicable diseases to uh, the individuals as well. So we're really starting before we need the medicine, we're doing the health bit. Because of course, as we know, um, uh, the moment you are seen by a physician or by a health worker with a condition, it's very rarely the start of that condition. Uh, the fact you had a stroke on Wednesday doesn't mean that on Tuesday you were perfectly well. I'd be really surprised if your vasculature was absolutely perfect on Tuesday night, and then suddenly on Wednesday morning, bang, you suddenly have cardiovascular disease. You had cardiovascular disease on Tuesday. May I even, may I even propose that you may even have had it on Sunday? <laughs> and I haven't told you which Sunday. I'd go back many, many years. So really, this is about using personalized engagement, using data, using technology, uh, and really assisting the individual uh, to their full potential. Because as we said, we're looking to productive, healthy aging, where a person remains um, uh, part of society, where a person remains uh, fully contributing to society, enjoying um, uh, the life that they uh, uh, wish to lead, whether that means in employment or that means in active retirement. Uh, because at the moment, longevity doesn't necessarily get you as far as uh, we need to. Uh, as we know, we have increased in longevity over the years, but the last couple of years, sadly, uh, often end in misery with people with multiple symptoms, uh, an awful lot of multimorbidity. Um, so what does this mean in terms of data and access? We know what's happening in terms of data. We've seen an absolute explosion in the amount of data points that are available, and um, 5G and the Internet of Things is only going to accelerate that process. Uh, what are data points useful for? Well, clearly, um, um, uh, uh, it, it, it is really what feeds uh, artificial intelligence. And we've seen an explosion 
in the in the uh, another explosion in the in, in the deployment of these new technologies not only in, the, in 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 visual fields which is really where they started but also in personalized care even in covid patients for example um, um, and the data is all coming into one place we're seeing this happening uh, now from the genetic data to the other omic data to the data around uh, the non-health determinants which we're all aware of and um, uh, the other thing which is important is, is this debate around the secondary use of data. And I think this is absolutely fundamental and really important because our, our contract with the citizen is not as strong as we think it is. Because if it were, there perhaps would be less of a debate around whether it's appropriate for a citizen to share their data with their health um, um, uh, uh, advisor and the supplier of their healthcare, because the advantages um, to the individual are significant, but still we see a lot of concern around this. I think some of that is wholly justified because the secondary use of data, in other words, the use of data for which it wasn't originally being presented um, uh, for research and for everything else with it, needs to be governed really carefully. And we haven't really covered ourselves in glory globally to actually manage that stuff. Because um, uh, uh, there have been too many examples of countries that have tried to introduce this, including my own, by the way, the United Kingdom tried to introduce a care.net data uh, process, which was around secondary care a couple of years ago, and really didn't win the argument uh, at all. The Netherlands had the same sort of um, uh, 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 experience. And a lot of it is because we haven't really explained why we're doing this and what the benefit to the individual is. We talk a lot about the benefit to the government, but there are people who don't necessarily think that's important, uh, certainly not to, them, to themselves. Um, and this is all part of us redefining and thinking again around consent, uh, because we're still using these perhaps somewhat outdated ways of managing this process with blanket consent, which is lifelong. Um, uh, I think there is a clear understanding. We Now we're having a much more um, um, uh, consistent longitudinal debate with individuals for us to develop a much more dynamic form of consent. And really, that's exactly where um, I think we are going. Uh, if we think of outcomes, well, clearly there is a, a significant advantage. The more engaged and activated uh, an individual is, and we can teach people how to become activated. We can encourage them to be activated, and the, clearly you get better outcomes because you get engagement. Um, you also can get people who assist you in managing uh, the metrics that drive health and care. So that in itself is an enormous advantage. Um, uh, I already mentioned the issue about healthy productive aging. And really, if we only think medically, if you have an awful lot of information about an individual, on which to base your precision medical approach, it's extremely likely to be better than if you had less information, which is really where we're all going in this, in this, uh, in this journey, with much more precise interventions to an individual. But it's all very easy to say we're, we're there and we're going there, and there are still some um, uh, problems here to overcome. Uh, we still are in a world of medicine by body part. The cardiologist doesn't speak to the neurologist, doesn't speak to the urologist, doesn't, you know, we can go on about this. And we all think in those terms in medicine, 
And the poor person in the middle of this often gets guidelines which actually, sometimes they don't even abut, they actually um, uh, fight against each other. Um, uh, so we really need to do some work there. Uh, the workforce issue is fundamentally important and it's, 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 I mean, not only in Canada, anywhere in the world, you're just feeling it more. Um, um, uh, and the burnout is really a significant issue, um, uh, partly associated with the training. I've already mentioned the trust. Clinical decision support is not where it needs to be. Uh, it's all very well to have a hyperlink to be able to see um, uh, a recent guideline. There were only about a dozen guidelines when I first became a physician. Uh, now I don't even know how many there are. There are so many and the personalized. So expecting anybody to be able to practice without actually having all that available is impossible. And also understanding that most interactions are really short really puts the onus, of course, on the, um, uh, uh, on the practitioner. Uh, and, and clearly we have a significant issue there. The financial metrics within healthcare, need I say more? Having systems which are based on activity uh, don't jar very well with prevention of ill health because clearly uh, it's the ill health which actually is what one's talking about. So really getting that, that uh, moving from volume to value is something which is a journey everybody else, everybody in the world is going on. Uh, and, and of course the infrastructures we have don't exactly fit the new world. Um, I thought we have more. Yes. Um, I just want to mention what's happening in a few other countries before we finish. Uh, one is what's happening in places like Singapore. In Singapore, a very small country, only 5 million people, uh, they really have a well-developed health and wellness program given on a national basis, where they're able to really deploy that quite effectively. They do the same in Israel, but again, relatively small, 9 million in Israel, relatively small countries. And then you go to the Scandinavians, and in many respects, it's a place of wonder. In Finland, they have the famous Mycanta, which allows not only access, but the, the medical record, the clinical record belongs to the citizen, and the citizen gives access to the physician to the medical record, uh, and you get incredible engagement um, around that process. You get interoperability, you get all sorts of advantages that you're going to need to as you manage a population health dimension. The Middle East is, is full of wonder in many respects, um, uh, not only in Israel, but also in the Gulf. Uh, some of the states in the Gulf are now some of the most technologically advanced. You know, the Dubais, the Abu Dhabis, uh, these countries are really motoring ahead with the way they have developed uh, health and care and with engagement to the population. And even in developed countries like England, we're moving around trying to develop a new type of health check. Uh, to which is a process whereby every citizen gets, a, gets a, in essence, a cardiovascular assessment for free. Uh, uh, if they haven't engaged with the health service, people are actively invited to see if we can help people with behavioral change, often using nudge techniques, assist them uh, in their journey around non-communicable disease. So in essence, I think there's a lot going on. There's a lot more which will go on in Canada. And clearly the place uh, where a lot of this is gonna happen is in primary care is in, in ambulance services, because of course you don't need a doctor for a, a lot of these things. You need a health worker, and that could be anybody. Uh, anybody who's appropriately trained and with the appropriate support, uh, 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 potentially also within the um, uh, um, uh, digital um, uh, infrastructure which we have, which is actually quite easy to deliver. Um, 
So I'd like to stop there and thank you very much uh, for, your, um, uh, for your help and your intervention. We have a conference if you'd like to attend soon in Helsinki. Uh, it's free to attend. Please uh, come and join us uh, and hopefully we'll continue the conversation. And thank you very much, Bernard. Well, th thank you very much, Dr. Alessi. And what insight. It's so great to hear you speak and you have so much energy. Uh, you're raising some important questions for all of us, but you're, you're giving us some hope as to things that we can do together to improve care. Uh, but at the same time, you're, um, you're brave enough to identify the barriers that we all have to overcome. So uh, I'm glad you'll stay with us for, for a while so we can participate in the conversation uh, this morning.